Bush Heritage acknowledges the traditional owners of the places in which this podcast was recorded and in which we live, work and play. We recognise the enduring relationships they have with their lands and waters and pay our deepest respects to elders past and present. So, you need the ladder, a kit, a net and the data sheet. Okay. And wool, you've got yours, Rhiannon. Check. That's it. Well, we've got everything. And Jeff's got the ladder. It is dawn on Wagalkep and southern Noongar country in the wheat belt of Western Australia. The air is crisp with the first stirring of bird calls, marking a new day. Eight each. That's a good, a good target for today. A team of ecologists, volunteers and staff have arrived at a 389-hectare nature reserve called Kojanup. They are there to look for some very special animals. And to find them, they're going to have to climb some trees. So we're going to try these to see if they will block the holes so the animals can't get out. These researchers are looking for fascogales, red-tailed fascogales. You could say for people that know squirrels, they look a little bit like a squirrel, except they, they don't have the really big back legs. Arboreal marsupials, so small, they can fit in the palm of your hand. And so charismatic, with big ears that poke out of their head like satellite dishes, and a big eyed look. They will melt your heart. And they have a long, brushy tail, and right at the base of the tail, it's a very beautiful um, rufous red colour. It's not bright red, but it's a, it's a nice rufousy red. Known as Kangor to Noongar people, they might not be as popular as kangaroos or koalas, but like other small mammals found across Australia, they are a fundamental part of our ecosystems. But this population we are looking for today is special for another reason. It hasn't always been here. Over 11 years ago, with the species in decline, a small group of red-tailed fascogales were captured, bundled up carefully, and driven about 100 kilometres to their new home, Kojnup Reserve, in what would be the first wild-to-wild translocation for the species. Today on Big Sky Country, a podcast by Bush Heritage Australia, we tell you their story. Okay, there's no fascogale in here, but there's a beautiful nest. So we've got feathers, leaves, um, alocasurina needles. That's about it in here. And a little bit of alpaca wool. That's Angela Sanders, an ecologist who has been working with Bush Heritage for over 15 years. She was there when the very first Fascagales were released. So back in, in the, you know, 2010, when we were first thinking about this translocation, the Fascagales were present in, in a less than 5% of their known range. So they had, they had been found right across the, the southern Australia, right into Victoria, South Australia, through the deserts and th- right through the southwest WA and um, a, a little bit further north. But they disappeared from all most of their range. As is the case with most small to medium-sized mammals, the decline of red-tailed fascogales coincided with the arrival of foxes and feral cats in Australia, coupled with widespread land clearing. Now, the wheat belt of WA is the fascogales' last remaining stronghold, but even there, less than 10% of native vegetation remains. So the Department of Conservation in WA at the time were looking for areas 
where they could translocate red-tailed fascagales to, you know, secure their population. So at that stage, they were only found in a few wheat belt reserves further north than um, to Kojanup, and they wanted to move them a little bit further south to get a little bit more rainfall in the areas and, and to move them because of, you know, the threat of climate change. Kojanup Reserve fit the bill perfectly. This small patch of remnant bushland is prime Fascagale habitat, being one of the largest protected areas of Wandu woodlands in the region since Bush Heritage purchased the land in 1996. Those trees are, I suppose, nature's boarding houses and they, they have lots of hollows in them, they have lots of loose bark, they have lots of dead limbs and um, lots of places for animals um, to live, not just vertebrates but also invertebrates. So... There's a lot of um, food <laughs> in those trees and there, there are a lot of places for animals to hide. Yeah. So in this nest we, we've got scats, we've got feathers, um, we've got leaves, she-oak and lichen. And a fresh nest? It's a fresh nest, yep. So if you come up and just um, just put your fingers down into the nest, you'll see how deep and um, soft it is on the inside. It took a while to get the, the translocation you know, project approved through Bush Heritage and through the department. And once it was approved, the animals were, were moved in uh, May 2010 and then again in, more were moved in um, May 2011. If you're wondering what a translocation is, in conservation terms, it is when a species, habitat or ecological material is moved from one location to another. To help them settle in, an initial 20 nest boxes were erected in the woodlands. So we'd let them go in, in at dusk and we'd put them in the boxes and then they would, um, we'd leave them alone and then they would find their own way out and um, find, find other individuals and um, they, they'd get to know each other that way. It was a good way of doing it rather than just letting them go into the environment without having anywhere secure for them to, um, you know, to hide if, if, they, if they were um, attacked by predators. As the population grew and the animals spread out, the team installed more nest boxes and now there are over 60. Every year they go out to check those boxes and monitor the population. And every year they learn a little bit more about them, like some of the peculiar items that feature on their menu. And often you you don't you know you don't see them because they're in their nest. But this particular box had nothing else in it but a half-eaten frog. And this was a big frog. It was it would fit in the palm of a you know a hand. And what had happened is the fascagale had caught the frog, carried it up the tree, and pushed it into the small you know thirty millimeter diameter hole, and it had eaten the frog's head and one of its legs and left it there. But one of the most peculiar things about the Fascagales, their mating habits. Ah, oh, yeah, the, the, the males, yeah. So, so the reason that we only do the surveys in May, June every year is that they've got a, a fairly regular sort of breeding cycle. And what happens is the, the males only live for about 11 months and they've got a fast and furious life. So fast and furious that at nine months old, they embark on a deadly mission to mate with as many females as they can. And then very soon after that, they die from stress-related um, 
um, I, I suppose, breakdown of their body. Yes, we are talking about two months of non-stop sex. It's been called suicidal mating because males basically just have one breeding season in their life um, and they put their all into it. That's bush heritage ecologist Dr Michelle Hall, who works closely with Angela. Females can live for a bit longer. Um, yeah, so we've captured, recaptured females, you know, a year later that are still around so they can live for longer and maybe breed for two seasons in their life. But, yeah, it's a pretty unusual mating system and especially for a mammal. We think it's, it's, it's because they're living in a fairly, um, I guess, limited resource habitat that having the males around for two or three years is, is going to, you know, take up a lot of resources. So they've evolved uh, not to survive, in fact. So there's a lot of sex and a lot of death, which seems counterproductive. So what does it mean for the survival of their species? So a female can produce eight young a year. So she has eight nipples. There's generally eight babies attached after the birth. That's research associate Dr Tony Friend, who until recently was a principal research scientist with the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions in WA, the group who first proposed the translocation. Tony selected the Fasco-Gale source sites for the Cogenup translocation and helped move the animals in 2010. Oh, and those babies he mentioned? They can be as small as a tic-tac. In a good year when there's lots of food everywhere, say there's been you know, lots of rain and the, lots of seeding and flowering and, and lots of insects for the Fasco-Gales to eat, a lot of those young will survive. And where there were two Fasco-Gales, suddenly there's nine Fasco-Gales. But what happens in a bad year? Um, on, the, on the sort of downside, I guess, it means that for a period every year there are no males in the population. Uh, if you get a really bad year, say there's, there's no food around, it's possible that the, the population would, would die out. And I, I guess it also makes you think about how, how cheap life is in that, in that scenario. Lots of young are produced just so that few get through. This means that from year to year, there can be huge fluctuations in Fasco-Gale populations. So to really understand how they are tracking, you need to be able to monitor the population over decades, not years. Why are you wanting to be able to know which individual they are? Um, well, because if we come back in May, it's really interesting to see who's where they are, okay. so where we recatch them. Yeah, and survival yeah. data as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it might give us an idea. We might be able to do something with population size, maybe. Yeah. Because it's like mark yeah, it was, recapture. Yeah. Now, more than a decade on, the Kojanup population is thriving and even expanding onto neighbouring properties. But to ensure its survival long term, genetic diversity is going to be key. So we've got tissue from the original animals that were translocated in 2010 and 2011, and that's been stored. And what we're doing now is collecting more tissue to have a look at um, how many of the foundation animals are represented genetically in the animals that are um, on the reserve at the moment. They are hoping that the DNA will be varied and that they will have a strong genetic pool. If that's not the case, if we're finding that the animals that are there now are only um, related to one or two or three or four of the, end of the original individuals, we'll be looking at a, another, another translocation to, um, you know, increase the gene pool of that population at Cogenup. This is important, say, if a disease goes through the population. 
If all the animals have the same genetic makeup, then they are all going to be equally susceptible to the disease. But if there is enough genetic diversity, then hopefully some of those animals will survive and the population won't be wiped out. I, I suppose through the whole process I've learned that it takes time, it needs good planning and it certainly needs monitoring. Um, and you need to go back and find out, you know, what's happening and um, be able to respond to any, um, anything untoward that you're finding. So it's, it's really, really not about moving animals and then walking away. So clearly there's a lot of thought, research and work that goes into keeping this population stable. And it raises some bigger questions around the value and ethics of translocations more broadly. I've seen a lot of translocations done where animals have just been moved into areas where there's already a local population of a certain animal. And um, of course, they will fight and they're territorial. And we have no real knowledge of, of if those animals have survived or which ones have survived and how the animals that have al- already were in place, how they've survived. And, and of course, one of, one of the things is that you may be um, putting some of those animals at risk. Uh, so that's, I guess, it's a, it's a matter of stating that and, and uh, weighing it up against um, other risks, like um, if you don't do it, for instance. Um, I mean, I, I guess the, the really pertinent point here in my life experience has been with the uh, Gilbert's Potteroo which was rediscovered in 1994, only one population, and that's all that was left, about 30 animals. Um, we tried for a long time breeding them in captivity, and then, but in the end um, put some on an island, um, which they hadn't been recorded on before. Turned out that whole island, Bald Island, was fabulous for the Potteroos, and, and that population rose to be the largest population of about 70 animals. We also put them into a fenced area on the mainland, um, about 35 animals. In 2015, a lightning strike started a bushfire at the original site where the Gilbert's Potteroos were rediscovered in 1994, wiping out that population. If Tony and his team hadn't successfully carried out those two translocations, the Gilbert's Potteroo might not exist today. That's the risk I think you see there, there's a risk of not doing anything, you know, of, of, of just perhaps being so timid and not wanting to put any animals at risk that you, you lose your whole species. On the flip side, there's also the risk that we pin too much on translocations without addressing the bigger issues. So I think it, sometimes we can appease our sense of guilt or our wanting to do something and help because an area is going to be cleared of vegetation, so let's move some of the animals. And it, it, it is, um, I, I think we need to get to the stage where when we make these decisions to clear a patch of native vegetation, we need to face up to the fact that thousands of animals are going to die and that's what's going to happen. That's the truth of it. Yeah, I mean, translocation is really, it's not the last resort, but um, it's really only done um, for species that are really in extreme circumstances. So translocating just a few bandicoots or possums or whatever is not the answer. And I think we need to look at the bigger picture and, um, you know, look at 
why are we still why are we still clearing native vegetation in Australia? That's my biggest question. We we just um, should not be doing any more clearing. Um, when you when you look at the satellite images of the more arable areas of Australia, just about all of it is cleared of its native, native vegetation. So, you know, by by looking after these small remnants, we we are we're just holding back the tide, really, because there's there's still a lot of ongoing effects that we see from that fragmentation that still haven't fully played out. Um, you know, we've caused this situation, so. In my mind, it's our duty to actually ameliorate it and, and uh, try and stop the loss because, um, I mean, you know, if you look at the wheat belt from space, <laughs> um, there's not many trees left there, not much bush, and uh, that's really, really put most of the wildlife into a very perilous situation. And, of course, aside from clearing, there's another big issue facing species like the red-tailed Fasca-gale. Climate change. Modelling shows that the Wheatbelt region is likely to experience lower rainfall, hotter, drier conditions and more frequent and severe bushfires. I, I think climate change is going to be the biggest threat to them. So when the woodlands um, start to decline, which has been happening right across Australia, so that, that's going to have a big impact on them. Aside from losing their homes, isolated populations such as this are also at risk of being wiped out by bushfires, as Tony's story about the Gilbert's Potteroo demonstrates. Though thankfully there's a lot of people actively managing Kojanup and the surrounding area to keep the fires at bay. That certainly would have a catastrophic effect on the red-tailed fascigales, but we're, um, you know, we're well aware of that and we're, we've got all, all that in our in our fire planning is to um, to do what we can to keep you know catastrophic wildfire out of that reserve. So, for now, the red-tailed fascigales are safe at Cochinup, thanks to people like Angela, Michelle, and Tony, and the many people who have supported their journey along the way. And while some uncertainty remains, the future is looking bright with a solid plan in place to keep these adorable marsupials safe in their trees. We've got a closed trap. You know, they're still there and they're still in other parts of the wheat belt too. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's as bright as it can be in the face of climate change and, and fragmentation is, yeah, you know, it, it's not all good news, but it's um, we're aware of what's going on and we can do something about it. That's the main thing. Big Sky Country is a podcast by Bush Heritage Australia, a conservation not-for-profit that buys and manages land and partners with Aboriginal people to protect our irreplaceable landscapes and magnificent native species forever. To learn more about our work, follow us on social media or sign up to our newsletter via the link in the show notes. Special thanks to Angela, Tony and Michelle for their contributions, Nick Duncan for recording audio on the ground in WA, and donors Peter and Maxine Wilshaw, who funded the genetics project at Kojana. This episode was produced by Amelia Caddy and myself, Eliza Herbert, with advice from Liz Keane. 
The theme music is Invertebrate City by The Orb Weavers and audio was mixed and mastered by Mitch Ansell.